0: We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today. It's good to see everybody. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, If I ask you to tell me about your best friend, what description would you give me? chances are you would start listing off different characteristics that you identify your friends by. You would say, well, my friend is very funny. They're always cracking jokes. My friend loves to go to the gym. They're always lifting weights. I have a friend from work. They're the hardest worker I know. And what we would be doing is we would be building a profile of someone based on their characteristics. We call that profile that we build of people identity. That's the characteristics that define a person. And nowhere in the world can you see identity better played out than in a high school because when it comes to high school these young kids are coming to adulthood and they're trying to figure out what makes me me who am I and what makes me different than everybody else and so they express their identity in a bunch of different ways now I know I'm a little bit removed from high school you know about 20 years some of you much more removed from high school some of you are still in high school Uh, but here's what I remember from high school when I was in high school we had these different groups of people that were defined by their different um, characteristics. we had At this time, we had a group of kids called the Preps, the really popular, good-looking kids. And they had perfect hair. They had the right clothes from all of the right stores, and, and they were defined by how cool they were. We had the Jocks, who were good at sports. That was me. Not really. Uh, the, these were the kids that were defined by the fact that they could jump higher and run faster than anybody else. They always wore Nike and Under Armour. Uh, back in my day, we had the Skaters. Some of you are embarrassed because you were skaters back in the day. Uh, the, The skaters were defined by the fact that they wore baggy clothes and they were rebellious and they listened to punk rock music. Then you had the rednecks, politically correct term, good old boys. That really was me. I had it on the front of my truck. The good old boys, they were defined by loud trucks and country music. And then you had the nerds, and the nerds were defined by the fact that they grew up to make a lot more money than the rest of us. Okay, So all of these different groups had these defining marks of them. And we see that in high school, but as adults, we still have that same problem we still search for identity and look for ways to find our identity and when we place it into a bunch of different things some people define themselves their their identity by their education level whether they work blue collar or white collar jobs we've seen this grow in the past 10 or 15 years people defining themselves by political party and this is list of characteristics that we say, this is who I am, this is who I identify with. But one of the problems we see in Christians, one of the problems we see in ourselves, is one of the ways that we identify ourselves often is by our money. If you haven't been with us over the past several weeks, we've been kind of in and out of this series called the Dreaded Money Series, and I know what you're thinking. Another one, it's the last one. We're going to move on to the book of Jude next week. But we've been in this series, and what we're really focusing on is we want to have a biblical view of money. We want to heed God's warnings about how money can affect our life, and we want to use our money in the way that God commands us to, and view it in that way. And today what we want to talk about is we want to talk about both giving identity to others based on money, and Um, having an identity for ourselves based on money and how to walk away from that. So how do you know if your identity is wrapped up in money? Uh, The first step to this will be you will define other people by their money. You may see people with more money than you, and you're, you're going to find that the more money they have, the more value you find for them. This happened to me, and I was convicted of this this morning as I was going over my message one last time. This happened to me on vacation last week. We were in St. Louis, and we were staying in a suburb of St. Louis, and we went to this restaurant. and It wasn't a fancy restaurant. It was a pizza place. But we went to this restaurant, and I realized we're in the really, really nice part of town. This is this is where like all of the rich people stay, and I could just tell by the way that people moved and dressed around me these people have money and I started to feel very uncomfortable you know why because this isn't the Triangle Cafe in Batesville, Arkansas. These people are different than me. And in my mind, I immediately thought, these people are probably judging the way that I'm dressed. Nobody even noticed I was there. But in my mind, I had to fight that. And I realized something deep, sinful in my heart is that I was assigning value to people based on their income or how much money they seem to have. And I was comparing myself to that. And in the same way, we can identify people who have less money than us and assume, well, if you have less income or less money, you have a lesser value. And I know that this is something that happens in churches because the Bible addresses it in James 2, verse 2. I'm not going to read that to you, but let me paraphrase to it. James tells us, he says, beware of doing this. When somebody walks into your church and they're dressed nice and it says significant, or they're wearing a, I don't have my wedding ring on. They have a gold ring on and you take them and you're like, here, come sit in the front, sit in the best seat. And you dote over them and you make a big show of it. But when somebody poor comes in, you say, yeah, you can sit off to the side. You don't pay attention to them. The the Bible warns us not to do that. And what it specifically says here is that this is proof that you are judges with evil thoughts in your heart. So there's this warning to be careful of giving identity to others based on their money. There's a warning to us also to be careful of making our identity based on money. So our our scripture today is 1 Timothy. Let me give you a little bit of background. When this was written, uh, Timothy is a young pastor. He's a protege of Paul, the Apostle Paul, probably converted on Paul's first missionary journey. And he had been with Paul at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, which you're familiar with, because that's where the books of Philippians, Thessalonians, and Corinthians were written to. And this letter of 1 Timothy is the first of two letters that we have that Paul wrote to Timothy as he begins to lead, preach, and teach in the church of Ephesus. And there's going to be all of these themes that are warnings to Timothy as as a leader. And in this final little bit of the book, of the letter, there's a final warning that centers on how you view and how you use riches. Read with me. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 6 through 8. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. Your first take home truth this morning is be content with what you have and grow in faith. And Paul to Timothy defines this as great gain. So Paul says, first off, be godly with content. So let's talk about those two, our contentment, godliness with contentment. Let's talk about those two words for a second. Godliness is not us becoming a god. Godliness is not us making ourselves good enough for God. Godliness is one of the works of the Holy Spirit where God's character is reproduced in us. See, what we have is we have a perfect, wonderful God in every sense of the word, in every way, God is perfect. And what happens when we become his followers is God begins to work in you and me and he begins to reflect his love, his glory, his attributes, his character inside of us. That's why you can spot a Christian without knowing they're a Christian. You can just be like, oh, there's something about that person. They have some character traits that aren't normal for human beings. And what we're noticing is As we're noticing God's character in them, the Holy Spirit will shave off the undesired parts of us and create new traits. That's why the Bible talks so much about the old man before we get saved and the new man after we get saved. That's why the Bible talks about being born again. It signifies a change in us. And as we get closer to God, the more like Him in character we become. We can never be perfect like God, but we can be like God in character in high school I had these two coaches some of you guys will know these we we had a coach that had been there for a long time his name was coach long and he was he was the girls coach and coach long if you ever had him coach long had a personality this was like an infectious personality like he had his own particular way of doing things he just kind of stood out as kids you know he's like that that guy's different than everybody else and in comes this new younger coach coach nail to be the men's or I'm sorry the boys basketball coach and what we realized over the three or four years that I was in high school is every year, Coach Nell started to act a little bit more like Coach Long. He's like, who are you? You're, you're acting more like the older, more mature coach, coach Long. And the reason for that was as he was in contact with Coach Long, he started to pick up some of his attributes. The same is true for you and me as Christians. The longer we spend closer to God, as we come closer to Him, we start to pick up some of those attributes of God and they start to show off in us. And that's what what, uh, Paul is speaking of when he says godliness here is God's character being reproduced in us. And then he talks about contentment. Uh, Contentment is just being able to accept God's will. That means no matter the circumstance, I am content to know that God is in charge, God is caring for me, and God has a plan for me. That means in riches or in poverty. I know God has a plan for where I'm at. That means in sickness or in health, I know God has a plan for where I'm at and I can be content where I am because I trust God. Now, the opposite of contentment is desire for something more. And Paul's going to go forward, and he's going to address that as well. If you've still got your Bibles open, this is verse 9. So, speaking to Timothy, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Your second take on truth is desire will lead you into a trap that will drown you. Now we look at this and we obviously write ourselves off and it says that there's this desire to be rich. And I've never heard anybody, well let me take that back, I've heard very few people say, what do you want? I want to be rich. And they use that word. I want to be the rich guy. I want to have an apartment in Los Angeles over the Sunset Strip. I don't even know if that's right. I want all of these things. Not very many people will say that. And most of us in here probably haven't set our lives on being rich. But here's what it looks like to desire being rich or desire riches. It looks like just a little bit more all the time. I just need a little bit more. I've got to get that, that paycheck just a little higher. I've got to get a promotion. I've got to do a little bit more in the sales. I just need a little bit more. If I could just make this much a year, I would be happy. And you know what I've learned in my very brief time out of college is I've, I've learned that whatever amount of money that somebody pays you, you're always assured that you're going to be happy when you get to that next level of money. When I started teaching at high school, I I sat there and I looked at my salary and I'm like, wow, okay, we'll make it. And then I looked at the, the teachers who were ahead of me. It's like, they make $3,000 more a year than I do. Boy, if I could make $3,000 more a year, I'd be happy. And then I'd get there and I was like, you know, I need an extra $5,000. I get there, I need an extra $5,000 past that. There's never happiness in there. Money always moves the goalpost, keeping us from being content. So we have this constant desire to want more. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says it is content or it is gained to be content in godliness because not being content leads you into a temptation which is a trap. And the Bible specifically uses the imagery of a snare. Let me explain to you, you may, you may know this, how a snare works. I'm not a trapper, but I've watched some shows of uh, people living out in the woods, and they're always coming up with this idea. So what they'll do is they'll take some bait, something that looks juicy to a coyote or something like that, and they'll place it in a place where the coyote can't get through it except for one little place. And then they'll leave a loop of string there loosely tied And you'll watch the animals, sometimes they'll leave the the, uh, camera on there. And the animals will come up and they'll sniff around and they'll try to find another way in. And they just can't resist it. So they stick their head in that little hole and as they do, they begin to push on that string. And the harder they push, the more that string tightens around their neck until suddenly they're caught and they can't get away. And eventually that snare destroys that animal Here's what the Bible says to us. That desire for riches, that desire for more, 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 it's a snare that grabs you and will eventually destroy you. It works the same way as we catch an animal. Every little extra job, the more investment, just a little bit more debt, eventually those things will begin to own you and they will destroy you. Um, a movie I liked from when I was younger was called Gone in 60 Seconds. I don't know if you've seen that. It has Nicolas Cage in it. And Nicolas Cage plays a character called Memphis Raines. Uh, Memphis Raines was a, a retired car thief. He had got out of the life. He decided he'd rather live than get killed chasing these cars. But he was legendary. And the beginning of the movie is an old acquaintance coming to him who has looked him up. And he comes to him and says, Memphis, your little brother is in trouble. And what we find out in the rest of the story is that the little brother had spent his life looking at his older brother, this kind of legend of car thieves, and he had followed in his footsteps, and he always wanted more. He wanted a bigger score. He needed a little bit more. And by the the beginning of the movie, he had got himself into debt with the wrong people, promising to pull off a job he couldn't pull off. And they come to Memphis and say, you've got to save him. He pushed too hard and the snare has tightened around him. Uh, The same thing happens to us when we desire money. It's a trap that will catch us. Let's continue reading here verse 10. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greenness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Take off truth number three is money destroys by taking root and growing other evils. See, money is a jealous lover that constantly demands more. And if we choose to love money, what the Bible says is that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, most of you know that verse, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. You can say that. It's one of the few things that we can remember. Now, what we'll often do with that verse is we'll kind of use it to give ourselves an excuse. As Americans who live in an uber-rich society compared to most of the other human beings in the world, we'll be like, well, it doesn't say money is evil. We make that distinction. It says the love of money is evil. I can have lots of money as long as I don't love it and I'm okay. And you're 100% correct in that. That is exactly the context of the verse. But the reason we begin to make that distinction is we begin to defend ourselves. You know why? Because we love money. And that verse convicts us. And that verse tells us that something is wrong within us. And so we feel this need to be like, oh, that verse is not that big of a deal. And we tend to ignore it or write it off. But here's what's interesting. It says, from the love of money all kinds of evil will show up. And it lists a couple of things. Specifically, it says that people will stray from faith. We all know somebody right now that will tell you, yeah, I need to come to church, but I have to work or I have to do something else. And we know, like, they they don't come to church and they don't follow Christ because their life revolves around money. It also says that the evil it will cause is it will cause sorrows. Now, once again, Paul uses imagery here with this root. We don't think about this. We kind of go over this, the root of all evil. But think about what a root really is really is. I've got a picture coming up. If you think of how a root really works in the way of a plant, you'll have a tree, which is what we're going to use today, and you have this root structure underneath it. And here's the characteristics of a root or something being rooted. Generally, the root is unseen, with the exception of a few roots that may run across the top of the ground you may see. But most of the time, you don't see the roots. They're hidden. hidden. These roots anchor the plant where it's supposed to be. They keep it there. They keep it from blowing over in the wind. The roots will go find nutrients, and they will supply the tree and from those roots the tree will grow here's what the scripture is saying there's it is saying there's all kinds of evil in this world that is anchored in supplied in and growing from an unseen root of love of money greed covetous, and desire what if we looked at our world and we looked at all the evil could that be right could the word of god be correct when it says there's a lot of evil in And the unseen root that keeps it going is the love of money. I believe God's word. I believe what it's saying is is that there are a lot of things that are happening in our world that we can see, things that have grown evil in front of our face, that what we don't see is the beginning parts of this, the anchor of this, is the desire of money. We can see that in our personal lives, but today I think it would be better to just go ahead and see where we see it in our society or in societies. In Genesis, there's a story of a city, or two cities, called Sodom and Gomorrah. If you spent any time in Sunday school, bridge, cruise, if you've been to church, you probably heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is legendary for being sinful. It is legendary and synonymous for, uh, for God's punishment and destruction because of sin. And we especially link that to a lack of sexual ethic in the city. And the reason for that is in Genesis, God has decided to destroy this city, these cities, because of their sin. So God sends two angels into the city. Their job is to destroy. Now in the Bible, when angels appear to men in our realm, they always appear as men. So these two angels walk into Sodom and Gomorrah and they go to the house of a man named Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. He's going to be a person in the story uh, many other times. And so what happens in this and what we usually think of when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah is we think of what happens next. Is all of the men start coming and banging on the doors and they get locked to the door and they demand, bring those two men that we saw walk in here, bring them out to us so that we may know them. Okay. If you don't know what the biblical sense of know is, they're planning to rape them. And Lot is so confused morally that his high ground is, you cannot have those men. I'm going to be virtuous. I'm going to protect those men. Here's my two virgin daughters. Go do whatever you want to with them. This place was so dirty that that's what Lot thought was the virtuous road. And we often associate this story with Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction. Because after this, God does destroy the city. Um, Lot's wife, as they're exiting the city, turns around. She's turned into a pillar of Sodom. A lot of times we use that to talk about homosexuality and like a sexual ethic and things of that. Which is part of the equation. But look at this. Look for the root of what causes all of that sin in that society of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, this is from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50, if you want to look it up, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, look, this was the iniquity. Iniquity is sin. This is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter, which would be Gomorrah, had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty. Everybody say haughty. Not haughty like, you know, the person that you see at the beach. Haughty, like, like arrogant. Haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. So this presents a problem for us. Here, here's the problem. When the scripture defines, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He doesn't go immediately back to the story from Genesis 2. He doesn't say, well, they tried, they tried to do all of these nasty things with angels. They had no sexual ethic. That's not the first thing he talks about. He says, you had a city here. It had abundance of everything. They had everything you could dream of. They had food. They didn't even have to work. They had a lot of idleness. And even with all those things that God blessed them with, they didn't care for the rich or the needy, and they were haughty, they were arrogant. And then after all of that, he says they committed abomination before me. We get a glimpse of the unseen root in this verse. God points out their love of money. their their pride in the abundance, that they ignored the needs of others, that they were a a greedy, materialistic society. And from that root, from the root of greed, evil spreads to other, or other types of evil spread from them. Uh, We see that in our society. If you turn on the news, in fact, I suggest you don't turn on the news, because all it is is bad news. It's always evil, isn't it? Never any time, or and t- today we've got nothing but good news. It's never what you hear. It's always this is happening, somebody's been killed, somebody's died, something bad has happened all the time. And we see this evil in the news. And, and I would say that the root of this is the greed and love of money. I mean, look at the, look at the things that we see in our society. A sexual ethic, period, is disappearing. We can go into all the particulars of that. I just don't want to do that this morning. It's going away. There is no sexual ethic. There are two restraints on sexuality that our society still agrees on. One of them is consent. You can't have sex with somebody who doesn't want to have it with you. And the other one is age. You can't have sex with somebody that's too young. And those two are rapidly disappearing in our society, by the way. Past that. Go for it, society says. doesn't matter if you're married. doesn't matter if you're not married. doesn't matter if you're married to somebody else. It doesn't matter if they're married to somebody else. It doesn't matter what gender they are or what gender they claim to be. Just go for it. We're seeing this evil bloom up. Uh, We see in our society, we see uh, drug addiction and drunkenness is going over the top. Overdose deaths have tripled in the last 33 years. 33 years, drug overdose has tripled. Uh, Karl Marx was the uh, father of socialism. He, he came up with all this stuff about communism. And, and what he claimed, he said, that drugs and addiction are a symptom of people being poor. And that that's, that's why people get drunk, is they want to get away from the realities of society. So he said, if you get rid of poverty, you'll get rid of all of the problems. But what we're seeing is that addiction doesn't just affect the poor. The fiction, uh, addiction affects uh, the uber-rich as well. We see many movie stars and people who have everything the world has to offer who give up their life as they look into, um, or as they look to drugs to fill some void in themselves. Murder and mass shootings, unheard of 30 years ago. 30 years ago, nobody took a gun and went into an elementary school and released their evil on kids. But it's common today. Hundreds of people die from mass shootings every year just in our country. What if what the Bible is saying is that these things aren't coming from political causes, it's not the fault of the younger generations. What if these things are growing from the roots of materialism, greed, and finding our identity in the love of money? We can see some of those roots. You know how I said earlier that most of the roots are underground you can't see them but there's just those few that are up there right above the ground just high enough to knock the blade off your lawnmower. You guys know those roots? We can see some of those roots of greed in our society that are leading to these greater evils. Think about Thanksgiving for a second. It astounds me. Thanksgiving, somebody somewhere had an idea. Let's take a day and set aside and just be content and grateful that some greater being has given us what we have. Just one day a year. And what have we done? We've taken it and turned it into the most materialistic day of the year. God, thank you for all that you've given me. Now give me my brass knuckles. It's time to go to Walmart. There's some sales on. You see that same thing at Christmas. Christmas is a day we set aside to celebrate the fact that God himself came to us in the flesh. We celebrate that. And yet what do we do on Christmas? Thank you, Jesus, for being a baby. Give me my stuff. We see the roots of materialism and greed in our society, and it's part of us. I've got another picture coming up here. When, when we bought our house, we had these things, um, these, these little trees, are yucca, yuccas, I don't know, they're horrible, okay? I, I hated these trees because those leaves, those leaves are spiky, so you'd be driving the lawnmower and it's like somebody's throwing spears at you when you drive past these. I hated them and every time I said I was gonna get rid of them, somebody would be like, those are really expensive, those are nice, they're grown up, don't get rid of them. So I didn't until one day I accidentally knocked one over with an axe Uh, and then I knocked the other one over with an axe and I burned them in the pits of the fire where they belong they're horrible I hated these things but every year every year they start to grow back right now there are little spiky plants in my yard about this big where that tree is beginning to grow back why is that because I attacked the problem but it didn't take care of the root Christians listen this is for me and you we don't come here to talk about those people out there we come in here to talk about the problems and these people in here this is for you and me we want to cut down the evil of the world but we won't address even within ourselves we won't deal with the root of the problem as a matter of fact you and I are very guilty of indulging in the root of the problem the love of money the love of riches greed we're part of the problem so if the Bible is so clear that contentment is gain, but desiring to be a rich is a trap, and we read the Bible and we believe the Bible, right? Do we believe the Bible? Okay, I was going to say, well, everybody put your Bibles away. We're going to go to another chapter and we're going to talk about how important the Bible is. Right? So we believe the Bible. If we believe what the Bible is saying, why do we find ourselves going back into that snare? Why do we find ourselves... Turning away from what the, God, the gospel tells us and just be content with godliness and we keep finding ourselves in the trap of desiring riches. And the reason for that is we have an identity problem. Your next take home truth number four is our desire for riches comes from a desire for identity. Our desire for riches comes from a desire for identity. See, we desire riches because we desire the characteristics of riches. Stick with me for just a second. I'm going to flip back over here to Luke chapter 11. Uh, Listen to this. This this talks about our eye. Uh, Verse 34 here. It says, The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. What he's saying there is when your eyes fall on good things, then your whole body will be filled with good things. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. It's interesting what is said here in Luke, that, that our eye gives us some sense of who we are. And the reason for that is what we lay our eyes on will grow in our heart. If we spend a lot of time keeping our focus, seeing what we see on the goodliness and the godliness, we'll desire it. If we see a lot of bad things, we'll begin to desire that and that will grow on our heart. Now, when it comes to riches, here's the problem. Generally, when do you want something? When you see it somewhere else. That's why, that's why you get all these flyers in the mail that have all these pictures of all the things you never knew you needed and you decide you need. That's why stores have display fronts so you'll walk by and go, those shoes are cute. That's why we advertise the way we do because the d- idea is see it, say somebody else has it, want it. So a lot of times, our desire for riches is found in identity because what we do is we see somebody else with something we want or somebody we want to be and we esteem them based upon what they have. We give them an identity based on their riches and we compare that to our identity. By the way, that's called coveting. That's in the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, to not do. And in search of identity, we chase all of these riches so people will think we're somebody or so we'll have the characteristics of somebody else. Somebody else gets a new car, I want a new car. Somebody has a bigger house house than me, I want a bigger house. Somebody's life on social media looks perfect, I want their life. Somebody else gets to travel, I want to travel. At the end of it, a lot of times we want things and we chase riches because we want to be like somebody else. The Bible goes on and continues and gives us a warning about finding our identity and materialistic things. Read with me last time, verses 17 through 19 in Timothy 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. There's that word again, haughty. That means arrogant. Or to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, and let, they be, or let them be, I'm sorry, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Uh, your next take-home truth. Oh, let me back up here. Let me back up here. Uh, Notice what the Bible is saying. You notice that there is no condemnation of riches. Paul doesn't say, hey, tell the rich to get rid of everything. That stuff will take you straight to hell. Paul doesn't say, kick the rich out of the church. They don't belong there. What Paul does is he condemns an identity in riches. He says, tell them not to be arrogant. Tell them not to be haughty. Tell them not to find their identity in riches. To think that they're better than someone else because they have money. Or to think someone is better than them because they have more money than them. To not think they're superior. There's a warning. Don't do that. Secondly, he says, do not trust in riches. You know, there's a, there's a sense in our world, It's part of the proof that we love our money, is that money will fix everything. Everything would be better if I just had a little bit more money. Jess Foxworthy tells a joke. uh, He said he was standing in line at a gas station. I guess it was one of those times. I don't do lottery, but the lottery was up. And he said he's standing next to a guy, and the guy was there. You could tell he was having a hard time of it. And he said the Powerball lotto was at $75 million. He said I stood next to this guy in this gas station holding his lottery ticket and just going, man, I need that money. Jeff Foxworthy says, what kind of trouble are you in that you need $75 million? But but it kind of gives us a little bit of a sense of a truth about ourselves as we have this sense that, that money is the answer to everything, that it will fix everything. What we find a lot of times is that's untrue. A lot of times, money makes things worse. There's something called the Curse of the Lottery. Most people who win the lottery, thinking will answer all their problems, end up with more poverty, family breaks, drug addiction, suicide, than people who would not have won it. A lot of people who inherit large amounts of money squander it and waste their life and have the same issues because that money is given them to freely. So what the Bible gives us, it gives us an alternative. Instead of finding your identity and trusting in riches, the alternative is trust in God who gives to us richly. Simply this, trust is a belief. The belief that if we, uh, I'm sorry, the belief that God is good. The belief that he will give us what we need. That anything that we desire, anything we need, God will provide for us. More is not necessarily better But because you love and serve a good God, you always have what you need. So he then defines identity this way. He gives us the characteristics that define us if we don't define ourselves by money. In verse 18, he says, define yourselves this way. In doing good being rich in good works, being ready to give, being willing to share. And then he points to eternal life. Find your identity in the future, not the present. Find your identity in the fact that you will be with God forever, not who you are now. So your next take home truth number five now is identity should be found in God's perfect work in us and future for us. See, our identity should not be in do I have the greatest clothes? Is my truck the nicest truck in the world? Or it shouldn't be in how big the tires are, which is something I've had a problem with. Let me tell you something about a truck. No matter how big a tire you put on a truck, it will never be big enough because somebody like Anthony will always park beside you and make your truck look small. Thank you, I hate you. Like, finding this identity in all of these things doesn't matter. Our one identity should be in this. I belong to God. I don't need everything else. I don't need the big house. I don't need people to watch me drive by on a Ferrari. I don't have to have the most expensive clothes. I don't need all of these things because what I have is I have God. And my identity is this. I'm undergoing this process, this eternal change where he is making me more like him, making me holy, that he has lost me. I was one way. I was lost in sin and now I'm different in the chosen um if you guys aren't familiar with the chosen it's a story about jesus and the disciples life there are parts of it that are fiction there are parts of it that are true but there's this this one part of it where they they've created a backstory for mary magdalene Uh, all we really know about mary before she started following jesus was that she was um, inhabited by seven demons and jesus threw those demons out of her and she was by his side as much as possible throughout the rest of the gospels and in the story, they have Mary who has come in, or in the Chosen, they have this Mary who has come in contact with these other religious leaders, these other people who, who have tried to get these demons out of her and failed. And one day, one of these people walks up to her after she's had her encounter with Jesus, after Jesus has healed her and cast the demons out. And he says, What happened to you? You were like hissing and evil and crawling on the floor, and now you're healed. It's a miracle. And one of the best lines from the show, this is not a Bible verse, please don't get confused. I just love the way that they portrayed Mary's identity. She said, I was one way, but now I'm different. And the difference was him. If you want an identity today, our identity is simply as this, I was one way, I was lost, but now I'm different. And the only difference in me is that Jesus pursued me, he found me, he gave his life for me. All he asks is that I put my faith in him and I follow him and I repent of my sin, that I belong to him. Live if you want to start making your way up here. Uh, this morning, I can tell you, as your pastor, I don't live my life that way all the time. I've been so convicted by this because I found in myself that dirtiness. It says, I find my identity in everything except for my Savior. I hope you'll come alongside me and say, no more of that. It's not about me and who I am and who people think I am. It's about the God who lives within me. And this morning, maybe you need to take a step in placing your identity in Him. And it may be a hard commitment. It may be saying, I'm no longer going to do this thing or go to that place. For some of you, it may mean for the first time you choose to put your faith in Him, that you choose to trust God because everything else in this world has failed you. It's the easiest thing in the world. All you have to do is believe and put your faith in Him. He saves you and you become a new creature. But for the rest of us, let us represent God in a way that shows that He is all we need. Stand and worship with me.